So I think you get the, the picture, don't you? It's um, quite incredible. I mean, the, the cinematic sort of uh, function of it um, helps us to come from a perspective of, of this sort of closeness about everyday life and, and just zooms out and keeps on zooming out to show some of the, the, the beauty and the vastness of the planets, the stars, the constellations, the galaxies. And in a way, I think it opens our eyes to the, the splendour and the, the wonder of the, the cosmos beyond our normal perspective. Psalm 121 begins with a sense of perspective. Um, just yesterday, we had a, a meeting here. It was our, our vision morning for Bridgian Church, and it was a fantastic morning, and thank you to everyone who contributed. Um, with thanks to God and to everyone else, um, we had some brilliant ideas and plans and, and visions for uh, the future of Perugian Church. And there still needs to be some work sort of distilling it all and uh, getting the plans to a place where they can be put into action. But we are well on the way. And so that uh, vision morning helped us to gain some perspective as a church. Um, and with Psalm 121, uh, we gain perspective on the world, on our lives on uh, this universe. Um, Psalm 121 is the second of 15 psalms of ascent. Many commentators believe that these psalms were used as part of the journey to Jerusalem for specific festivals and celebrations. These psalms of ascent or ascending were most likely used as songs that pilgrims would sing on their way to the festival. It's quite possible that Jesus and his family, on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover or to other festivals each year, uh, would have sung this psalm uh, with his family and the other pilgrims on their way. So a psalm of ascent brings to mind an upward journey. And what happens when we ascend? What do we do? What do we get when we climb a hill or a mountain? Well, we usually gain some perspective. Uh, for me, the first thing is I probably notice the perspective on how unfit I am, um, but it also brings greater perspective. We can look out from the mountain. We can see something greater going on than we usually see in the, from the confines of our day-to-day lives. The Psalms of Ascent, um, there's 15 of them, uh, they're really quite short, most of them. They share similar themes, and they're actually really great. They're encouraging, they're wonderful reads uh, from Psalm 120 to 134. Um, I encourage you to check it out. But who were they for? Well, they were primarily for believers, for pilgrims on their way, people who, who trusted in God or who tried to trust in God. But Psalm 121 also gives great encouragement for those who are struggling to believe, or for those who don't yet believe. It begins in a way that I think good evangelism should. It begins with a sense of God's greatness. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? You can imagine the pilgrims tired as they were from their long journey. And then someone calls out and they begin to sing, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And then everyone shifts their perspective. Instead of just looking at 
the next step, the next rock to avoid, the next dusty footfall, they, they turn and see some of the vastness, the grandeur of the mountains. This psalm raises our vision from ourselves and our little perspective to a much greater perspective. And we all need those sort of paradigm shifts, those changes of perspective from time to time. I was particularly struck when I, I saw a greater perspective on evangelism. Often, often evangelism begins with bad news. Um, in the Alpha course, Nicky Gumbel shares a great example of the bad evangelism that he learnt in his very, very earliest days as a Christian. Um, he undertook a course on evangelism and uh, the first thing they were told to do was to establish the person's need. And so he rocked up to this uh, nightclub and he saw um, who would be his future wife, Pippa, um, out on the dance floor and he went over to her and he said, you look terrible. You really need Jesus. Um, yeah, not really the great, not really a great effective way of evangelising. And it was someone else in the end who, who brought Pippa to uh, come to understand that Jesus loved her and become a Christian. Now, like me, you may have heard evangelists um, approaching people on the street and start with the bad news. They say things like, have you ever stolen anything? You know, just a 25-cent fruit bar like I did from Bilo as a kid. Um, have you ever stolen anything? Maybe you picked up one of those pens that says this pen was stolen from such and such a company. Um, maybe you've stolen something significant. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Have you said, oh my God, or Jesus Christ, in an angry way or just in a unthinking sort of empty exclamationary sort of way. Um, have you ever looked at someone lustfully? Uh, have you, you know, Jesus says, when you have lustful thoughts, that's as good as committing adultery. And in your heart, that is. Um, then that evangelist on the street will sum up and they'll say, so you're a self-confessed thief, blasphemer and adulterer. You've got a serious problem. Now, the solution to that problem is Jesus. And Jesus takes all of our sin, all the sin of the people who believe in him, and he pays for it on the cross. So that's one approach to evangelism. And I think it's had some sort of success over the years. But I think uh, today people are much more likely to respond to something like the beginning of Psalm 121. Instead of sharing the good news of God by beginning with the bad news of sin and brokenness and guilt and shame... We can start the good news of God by raising our vision to see how wonderful God is. It's about lifting our eyes from me and my problems, my issues, my world, to something higher and greater, a new perspective, a paradigm shift. So in my uh, paraphrase, Psalm 121 says, Go big. Don't look just here. Look out. Look bigger. Check out the mountains. They are... They're pretty big, they're pretty impressive, they're pretty beautiful, you know, snow-covered or, or rocky. They are grand. Now, where do you find help when you need it? Is it from these grand mountains? No. Look bigger again. Change your perspective. Zoom out into the heavens. Check out the stars, the planets, the asteroids, the galaxies. Still not big enough. We need to get the next paradigm shift beyond 
even the heavens, going deeper within reality. Shift your vision from everything that's been made to the one who made everything. He's the one who can truly give us the help that we're looking for. So what is this God like? Well, in verse 3 it says, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will neither slumber nor sleep. He really cares for us, body, mind and soul. He watches over us attentively, continually and with love. Now, it's possible that the psalmist was prompted by the high places in the mountains, the places where the idol worshippers would place their idols in high places, uh, their statues for worship and the, the places where they go sort of on pilgrimage. And if this is the case, that he's actually addressing that, then it sort of does the same thing with those. It says, sure, look up there, look to the mountains, look to the high places and see these silly little statues, these idols that can actually do nothing for you. And then look beyond them. See the one who made the the stone, the timber, whatever your idols are made of. See the one who made these hills, these high places. The true God who made it all is the only one who can do anything helpful for you. Now today we might think that we're more enlightened than people of ancient times who worshipped idols. Uh, But in truth, we have this sort of idolatrous strain in ourselves. Our idols are just just as wily and demanding of sacrifice as theirs. We get seduced by the idols of comfort. Power, control, and approval. These idols demand a sacrifice of our time, our energy, of money, and ultimately of our hearts and souls to please them. So just as an example, if if someone is longing for a promotion at work, uh, it could be possible that they're trying to put God first, seeking him and longing for his will to be done in their life. Or someone could be seeking promotion for for the power that the position brings, or the status that it brings. They could be looking for a promotion to get a, a bigger salary, to have more money to control their future, trying to eliminate uncertainty and, and gain some assurance for themselves. A person with an idol of comfort might want a promotion for the money so that they can get the stuff that will make them comfortable. And someone whose idol is approval might want to use a promotion to sort of win friends and be approved of by others. These idols of today can be tricky to identify and we cannot eliminate them from our lives with just our own strength. They actually need to be replaced. Our our love of these idols needs to be replaced by a greater love. So in a similar way, the ancients uh, would often worship, uh, you see in the psalm, the uh, sun or moon or sun or moon God. But the true God, if you go beyond those things, is much more beautiful, more true and good than any imagined God and more powerful and able to give us security 
during the, the dangers of any day or night. C.S. Lewis points out that our idols are often not from what we might think, desiring too much, but actually from desiring too little. He says it like this. He says, Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The idols that that we look to today aren't able to provide what we are truly looking for. Idols today are often good things that we make into ultimate things in our lives in the hope that they'll give us more power, comfort, control or approval. But in the end, if we really hungered enough for any of those things, we would seek them all in the God who made us, who created the heavens and the earth and who sustains our lives. Now, I'm sure all of you can recognise that even when we, we see God sustains our lives, he gives us the energy for every moment of our lives, we still can become depleted and tired out. Uh, even the most enthusiastic and energetic, positive person becomes weary. But the psalmist also shares an incredible image. God who keeps you will not slumber. He makes a wonderful point. God is the, the great insomniac. He doesn't sleep. But unlike us, when he doesn't sleep, he doesn't get uh, depressed or tired or grumpy or, or fearful. Um, when God doesn't sleep, he always has the energy and the focus and the desire to continue upholding us and sustaining us, caring for us. God is always alert. He's the one who keeps us, who holds on to us in his love. And the truth that God keeps us is repeated. In our NIV, it only says it a couple of times, but if you look at the New Revised Standard Version, it says in verse 3, He who keeps you will not slumber. In verse 4, He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In verse 5, The Lord is your keeper. Verse 7, The Lord will keep you from all evil and he will keep your life. And finally, verse 8, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. That's a lot of keeping, isn't it? Six times it says God will keep us. But how does God keep us? Well, the psalmist wasn't silly, and he knew that that people in his day uh, died. People today die. We know that. So what does it mean for this infinite God who flung the galaxies into space... Um, what does it mean for him to keep us? I'm sure most of you would have seen that great movie, Finding Nemo. Um, in Finding Nemo, the fish Marlin, uh, who's a clownfish, he's a dad to one precious son called Nemo. And Marlin tries to keep Nemo. 
He parents Nemo out of fear. He's afraid of everything and he's worried that if he lets Nemo uh, sort of beyond his immediate attention, then Nemo will get hurt. Uh, Marlon says to another fish, I promised I would never let anything happen to him. And Dory, the other fish, says, hmm, that's a funny thing to promise. You can't never let anything happen to him. Then nothing would ever happen to him. Not much fun for the little guy. Now, God doesn't keep us in the sense of never letting anything happen to us. But if that's not the way that he keeps us, then this repeated promise must mean something. There's a deeper sense to God keeping us, one that's absolutely true and more real than the sort of insecure keeping that we can try with our loved ones. God keeps us in a much more complete way. Now, that's all very nice and comforting, but is it really true? Well, hundreds of years after this psalm was written, God gave us real, tangible, testable evidence of his love for us. God, our creator, the one who sustains us, who keeps us, and who helps us in times of need, he touched the earth powerfully in the life of Jesus. So God, who will keep you from all harm, uh, isn't guaranteeing that uh, we'll never have anything happen to us in this life, but like Jesus provides security for eternal life, um, we have that security. We're guaranteed a resurrection like Jesus. It says in this psalm, he watches over our coming and going. He keeps us in our coming and going from now on and forevermore. He's the one whom we can be secure in in this life and in eternity. Psalm 121 paints a beautiful picture, raising our vision from our immediate surroundings to the God who made and sustains the whole cosmos. It confronts the idols of our lives and and comforts us with the one who keeps us, who cares for us, and ultimately who gave himself for us so that we can be secure in our birth, our life, our death, and our resurrection into eternal life. We are secure. We are safe. We are held onto and kept, anchored in the love and the care of God. Let me lead us in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, We thank you for this psalm of journey that takes us away from the everyday into the awesome wonder of your presence. You are the amazing God who made us and who loves us. And yet you came down and you made your home on the earth. Lord, you go beyond the understanding of our minds with your humble, servant-hearted love for us. We thank you that you want to expand our vision to see you in all of your splendour and to enjoy you as you are. You are the God who keeps us secure. Give us a deep understanding of what that means as we go into this week. And let us live from that place of security in your hands each moment of each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.